0: Hi everyone, thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Life After Love Gone Wrong. I'm Sandra Fava. I'm a family law attorney with Fox Rothschild. I am resident in our Morristown, New Jersey office. And today I have a very special guest with me, a partner and a friend of mine, Marissa Cobus-Kingman, Kingman, who is a partner in our white-collar practice group. And We've worked very closely together. I think that our conversation is super important for people to understand and know the differences between uh, a family law attorney and a family law perspective when dealing with a domestic violence matter and the implications criminally, both with the underlying acts of domestic violence and then subsequently if there's a final restraining order entered. So, Marissa and I are going to give you some information about that
1: today. Martha, do you want to say a bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Sandra. So I am in our criminal defense practice group. I'm in our New Jersey offices, our New York offices, and our Florida offices in Miami. I've been at the firm almost eight years. I'm a trustee on the Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers of New Jersey. I'm on the criminal practice mm-hmm. committee for the New Jersey Supreme Court. And I'm also in the Women's White Collar Defense Association. I have a leadership role there, and that's a national organization of just women who do criminal defense work.
0: So just as an interesting point, are there a lot of women that do criminal defense work?
1: There are not a lot of women that do white collar, especially criminal defense work, or really any criminal defense work. The New Jersey chapter of women of white collar is maybe 20-something people, and we're all very tight because the community is so small. Yeah,
0: so that's a pro uh, for you as a practitioner, but it's an interesting concept just to note how certain practice areas tend to be populated by one gender versus another, even as we sit here today. Okay. Yeah,
1: and just to that point, In FRO trials or in criminal trials, sometimes it is better to have a woman questioning certain witnesses. And so it's important to keep in mind if you have two attorneys on, you want to make sure you have the right attorney to question the right witness.
0: Very important. And we're going to get into a bit more of that as we continue our discussion. So domestic violence is obviously some form of abuse between partners in a relationship. The scope that we're going to be talking about is in a dating relationship or a, a familial relationship or a marriage. All of those things would qualify. Even a child to a parent can qualify as domestic violence because, under the statute that governs New Jersey domestic violence, which is the New Jersey Prevention Against Domestic Violence Act, it defines what kind of relationships would fall under the scope of the statute. So, those are some of the relationships. Most commonly, In my practice as a family law attorney, I see it with partners, whether dating or married, Um, and then I sometimes see it, again, with uh, parents and children, more of adult children and parents who, you know, may be having an issue. And sometimes the issues are related to a divorce or a breakup of the family in some way. So domestic violence, the underlying action, and there are several of which fall under that, right, Harassment, verbal, text messages, emails, telephone calls, all of that can be a form of harassment. Using social media is a big one. Obviously, physical violence, pushing, shoving, hitting, throwing objects at you. There can be verbal harassment, calling you names, a coarse conduct, obviously not what you would expect of somebody who was not trying to hurt you or offend you. What else am I, Criminal mischief is, for example, one of those things would be like somebody uh, messing with your car, messing with your property, taking property out of your place of residence. You come home and your room has been ripped apart. All your stuff
1: is thrown all over the place. Stalking. Right. So that could be online or in person. False imprisonment if someone keeps you somewhere and doesn't let you go, doesn't let you go when you want to leave, whether it's a car or a
0: home. If you have a phone or you ask to use a phone, they won't give it to you. That can be considered false imprisonment. And the other thing that is I'm not going to say a newer term because it's not a newer term, but it is a term that I feel that both judges and attorneys and the public are becoming more educated on with each day is a a term of coercive control. And what's interesting about that is that this is a type of domestic violence where you aren't able to as easily prove what's going on. So there's often a period of breeding where the abuser will find their victims and things will be great at the beginning. And then over time, they use things like mental abuse where you're not doing things a certain way. It starts with like a little bit of criticism and then it grows and grows and it can become extreme. But what I mean by breeding is that because it happens over a period of time, it is not necessarily understood or known right away that this is happening, right? So there's a lot of times you'll see in these relationships where they're cutting you off or uh, the victim off from friends and family, They're controlling what that person wears. For example, you have a a black sweater and the abuser, you know, likes that black sweater. And then as time goes on, they only want you to wear the black sweater. Right. Or The converse of that, maybe you have a a white t-shirt and they don't like that. And so they'll make you feel bad about that, like as if there's something wrong with that t-shirt, like you're dressing provocatively, you're acting inappropriately because you wear this simple thing. It's very insidious in the way coercive control comes across. Common things are finances, where I have represented men and women who are professionals, very successful in their careers. But they have zero control over their finances because their spouse has taken control over that aspect and will not give them access to it. They have no idea where their money goes. They can't access money. They're scared to use a credit card because they've had already conversations with their partner about finances and credit card use and what will they think if they see this. And I think when I say that, we're also learning about that. It's because There was a period of time, not so long ago, where people were not convinced that this was actually a form of domestic violence. And obviously, the grassroots started with psychologists and behavioral therapists and psychiatrists who were dealing with victims of this type of control, who you'll read about in the news quite often. They snap. They can't get out of this situation, and they do something that is just so antithetical to their personality. And they make the news. And meanwhile, when you dig further, you find out that they've been in a relationship where these things have been happening. And so if you knew that, you would understand how they got to this point. But of course, the news only gives you their version of the facts, right? So you don't always get that. And it's honestly, with middle class Americans and upper middle class, this is very commonly the preferred type of domestic violence that is seen in those types of relationships. So there's a lot that we can get into in there. But let's talk about more of the -the run-of-the-mill things that are covered by our domestic violence statute and things that you see under the criminal code. So the first thing is, if any of those things that Marissa and I explained happen, the victim has the opportunity to either from their local police department or from their local courthouse, seek a temporary restraining order. This is in New Jersey. Every state has different names for it. I know New York calls them orders of protection, and there's different ways in which to get it. But we're going to talk about New Jersey for this moment. So you can seek what is called a temporary restraining order. And it is a protection that's put in place under the statute. It should not be in place longer than two weeks, 10 business days. Unfortunately, because of the practicalities of both COVID and the judicial backlog that we have in the state of New Jersey, where we don't have enough judges to handle all of the matters, and that was exacerbated through COVID, it is often times that those hearings are pushed out a bit. I think things have gotten better since COVID started, as we're getting closer to be back on track, but it is generally a slightly longer wait period between. When the temporary restraining order is issued and then in order to obtain a final restraining order, which is a permanent order of protection that lasts infinity unless the victim goes and voluntarily dismisses it, that requires a hearing because of constitutional rights under due process. And Marissa can talk a bit more about that because of the implications of a final restraining order. So you have this temporary order that can be granted or denied by a judge, and then those restraints are in place until the final restraining order is heard. I'm a family law attorney. It's all I've ever done. I've handled many domestic violence trials for final restraining orders. But there are times where I have known that because of either the predicate acts, the acts that got you to a point where you're getting a temporary restraining order, because of the nature of those acts and the consequences to either the victim or the alleged abuser, I need to bring in somebody with criminal experience because there's too much at risk here, one way or the other. And there's the nuances about things like that. And so part of Marissa and I, we have worked together. On many occasions, and with other members of the criminal defense group as well, trying these cases, right? And helping each other out when a domestic violence issue comes. And there are moments where they will do it alone. There are moments when I will do a trial alone. And then there are moments when we've collaborated together. And so I think, Marissa, can you share what you think is the benefit of having a criminal attorney involved in a domestic violence hearing from your perspective? Sure. Thanks.
1: So, oftentimes, there's going to be a parallel criminal investigation or criminal case while the TRO is pending and while you're having the FRO hearing. So, one reason you may want a criminal defense attorney assisting with the FRO hearing is because while you're preparing for this FRO hearing, in essence, you're also preparing for the potential criminal trial. And that's whether you're the defendant or you're the alleged victim. So if you're the defendant, you have certain concerns. And then even if you're the alleged victim, you are going to be the state's witness. And so you're preparing for that FRO hearing the same way you would prepare for being questioned by the state and by the alleged abuser's attorney. The FRO hearing can be very similar to what the criminal trial may be. And you want to be as prepared as possible for a criminal trial because of how serious those consequences are. And it only makes sense that you have your criminal defense attorney there with you for the FRO hearing and doing part of the hearing, if not all of it. Um, because you're either building a defense or you're preparing to make sure what to say when you're on the stand as the victim. And your criminal defense attorney is going to be familiar with how to handle the evidence and witnesses for the FRO hearing, because it's going to be the same evidence and witnesses that you're going to deal with for the criminal trial. And that could be anywhere from police officers to police reports to There's a lot of video footage these days, recordings, text messages. So it's to your benefit to have your criminal defense attorney go through all of that evidence while you're preparing for the FRO hearings. It's almost like you get this dry run at what will happen at the criminal trial, which almost never happens. Generally, as an attorney, when we're questioning a witness during trial, we don't know exactly what they're going to say. But in this case, if your criminal defense attorney is there for the FRO hearing and participating for the FRO hearing, the defense attorney is going to know exactly what these witnesses are going to say and what the evidence is going to show and the attorney is going to know the weaknesses and the strengths of the criminal trial based on what happened at the fro trial and you also want a criminal defense attorney participating if there's a criminal action or even if there's a potential for a criminal action because there's issues with the 5th amendment so the 5th amendment you can invoke your 5th amendment right Not to say anything that could incriminate you, and the law on that area in these FRO hearings is actually not settled. So, there are consequences to a defendant Mm -hmm. deciding to take the stand, deciding to assert the fifth, or deciding to testify. And it could mean if you're the alleged victim, you may want to call. The defendant as an adverse witness. And essentially, in a civil trial, if a party wants to invoke the Fifth Amendment right not to testify, not to say anything, then the other party gets what's called an adverse inference, which means they get the benefit of of the court deciding that whatever that person was going to say would have been detrimental and what the other party is saying is correct. FRO hearings are different. And so if you're the alleged victim and the defendant gets up there and invokes the 5th for every question you want your attorney to be able to argue why you get an adverse inference from that person testifying. And if you're the defense attorney for the defendant, you want to make sure you know how to argue that shouldn't be applicable in this case. And there's Case law on it. There are concurrences and dicta, and there's a relevant statute. And so there's really right. two sides to this argument, to this very crucial constitutional argument that can have very broad implications. And you want to make sure you have an attorney who's familiar with that area of law.
0: These are things that are happening during a trial, but also the consequences of a final restraining order. If somebody is found guilty of an act of domestic violence, that means registry on an international database. There are fees that have to be paid fines. Generally, they require attendance through some several kind of, I'm going to call them rehabilitation programs. Some of them are anger management, some of them are you know, parenting courses. If there is a custody dispute, there is a negative inference as to the ability of that person. Having the ability to be the parent primary custodial residence for a child or children, so you know there are definitely ripple effects. You can't have a firearm license if you have one. You have to give up all your firearms. Those are usually auctioned off, I believe, by the sheriff's department at some point. And for certain um, jobs, employment that can be detrimental to somebody's ability to make a living. So. Understanding as both a victim and an alleged abuser, it's important that you understand all aspects of it. And I don't think, I know, I should say, Marissa and I are not here to tell you that there are other lawyers who don't know how to do this. That's, I'm sure, not true because we don't speak in absolutes when it comes to anything. But this goes back to what I say time and time again is when you are hiring an attorney. Or a law firm. You have to do your homework. You have to know the questions to ask. You have to make sure that they have experience doing domestic violence trials in the county where your case is going to be heard. Do they know these judges? Do they know the other attorney? Have they done cases like this? Have they worked with criminal counsel? Why would criminal counsel be relevant or irrelevant in this particular circumstance? These situations are just so personal. And I say this, they're like fingerprints. No two are the same. So you may know someone who was in a domestic violence legal proceeding and had a certain outcome. And just remember that, of course, we get advice from our friends and families and all of that, but everybody's situation is different. One minor factual difference can mean a totally different outcome. Everything is is just so important. And so Again, there are a lot of family law attorneys who have never been on trial. They've never tried a case. They have, they have courtroom experience where they've argued motions and they've been there for conferences, but they've never actually done a trial. So what does that mean? They're not maybe as well-versed in the rules of evidence. What can be admitted into the court? What is going to be objectionable? What is going to be what is outside the purview of what is needed, right? You want to make sure that they understand these other arguments like the Fifth Amendment and what could happen and where the argument needs to be made in order to either invoke or defend against somebody invoking the privilege. So if you are somebody who is really in a situation where you need the protections of a final restraining order, these are, I don't want to say life or death, but they could be life or death, depending on your factual circumstances. They could be life or death decisions here. So you really just have to make sure that you are getting information and understanding all the options and the pros and cons. And then you make an educated, informed decision from there because there's a lot. And judges, two people show up in a courtroom and and nobody has to have an attorney with everyone's right to have access to our legal system. And there are many judges who will try to help litigants kind of understanding that they are not lawyers and they are just regular people with other jobs, but they can't, they can't advocate on anyone's behalf. They are there to just extract information and get the facts. And just like all other people, all humans, sometimes they get it right and sometimes they get it wrong. So a lot, a lot of this is also, are you laying a proper evidentiary and factual foundation if there's going to be a, a coincidental criminal proceeding that the state is going to require your cooperation? Or is there going to be an appeal going up to the higher court, and are you going to make sure that you have your record correct and the evidence presented correct and you've made the appropriate underlying legal arguments because you can't bring up something completely new in the appellate division? And so just understanding that maybe you never get there, maybe you never have any of these issues, but knowledge is power, and certainly anybody who's going to an attorney for legal services should be making an informed decision and just understanding what questions there are to ask and whatnot. Sometimes these cases take a tremendous amount of prep work sometimes, right? Marissa and I have worked on matters where we've had experts come in to take digital evidence off of security cameras, off of cell phones to get records. And that evidence in the particular case that I'm thinking of made the trial. It is absolutely without question in my mind, I don't know if you disagree, What got our client a final restraining order? And just knowing, you know that, yeah, knowing that your lawyer understands that or is asking about that or is able to make those connections, it's important.
1: And knowing that your attorney has had this expert on the stand before and knows how to question, knows how they're going to respond, and while there's of course an added benefit to having a criminal defense attorney and a family law attorney on the case, there's an even greater benefit when those two attorneys have worked with each other before, because they know each other's style, they prepare for trial the same way, and it's going to go a lot smoother.
0: So I'm very fortunate, I say, the clients, because being at Fox Rothschild, we are a large multi-service law firm. And so Even if I'm not necessarily having Marissa or one of our other colleagues join me on a final restraining order hearing, if I have a question, I can just pick up the phone, right? And say, hey, I need a favor. Have you ever had this happen to you? Or what do you think about this? Or I'm just going to do this strategy. Does that make sense from the criminal perspective? And vice versa. I know a colleague of ours who was trying a domestic violence case and at a break called me because issues about custody came up and they wanted to make sure that they were appropriately answering the questions to the judge and and not doing anything that was going to potentially harm the client. So we work collaboratively, but it's easy because we're all under the same roof and we know each other's style and we've done this together more often than not. So there's definitely a benefit to, to doing that for sure. And Marissa, you also have a podcast that you've appeared on with issues related to criminal law, right?
1: Yes. So our White Collar Practice has a podcast, The Presumption of Innocence. And in it, we talk about everything from experts to sentencing to anything you can think of. So it's definitely worth checking out.
0: And all of the podcasts are found on our Fox Rothschild website. Um, Mine are housed under my bio page. So you just can search me up and they'll come up there. I think the same for you, Marissa, I'm assuming.
1: Yes, it's the same. Um,
0: And then we're both also speakers through other agencies and events. So even if you're maybe looking to get more information or whatnot, you can find all of our contact information on our Fox Rothschild homepage just by searching our names. That's the time we have for today. Unless you, you have anything
1: you want to add before we head off. I just want to say thank you, Sandra. It's always a pleasure working with you. I'm happy that you were able
0: to join us today, and we hope that you listeners and viewers found this to be helpful. Take care.